0: New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. We'll bring you the facts and some timely commentary from policymakers, experts, and grassroots leaders from across the country. Well, this is Infrastructure Week on Facing the Future. We have two guests with some differing perspectives on President Biden's $2.2 trillion American Jobs Plan. Our guests are Ben Ritz of the Progressive Policy Institute and Brian Riedel of the Manhattan Institute. Both have been guests on the program before. Ben is the director of PPI's Center for Funding America's Future, which develops policy proposals to strengthen investments in the foundation of our economy, modernize the federal health care system and retirement programs to reflect the aging of society, and they also uh, work on our tax code. Prior to joining PPI, Ben staffed the Bipartisan Policy Center's Commission on Retirement Security and Personal Savings, where he helped develop its proposed reforms to Social Security and retirement related tax expenditures. And I should mention, as a matter of uh, full disclosure, that before joining uh, the BPC. Ben served as legislative outreach director for the Concord Coalition. Brian Riedel is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. He focuses on tax, budget, and economic policy. Previously, he worked for six years as chief economist to Senator Rob Portman, uh, Republican of Ohio. And Brian was also staff director for the Senate Finance Committee's subcommittee on fiscal responsibility and economic growth. From 2001 to 2011, Riedel served as the Heritage Foundation's lead research fellow on federal budget and spending policy. And in that position, he helped lay the groundwork for uh, Congress to cap federal spending, rein in farm subsidies, and ban pork barrel earmarks, which are now coming back, by the way. And uh, 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 Brian, was a, uh, a charter member of the fiscal wake-up tour that the Concord Coalition organized uh, back during that time when he was at the Heritage Foundation. Tory Gorman, Concord's policy director, is also going to be joining the conversation. And we'll be right back with the program after these short messages. Ben, Brian, and Tori, welcome to the program.
1: Thanks, Bob.
0: Thanks for having well, us. Well, we're going to have an interesting uh, experiment today. We've had the Ben and Brian on the program before, and usually they're coming from different perspectives, but find a way to agree with one another. And this one's going to be a real challenge because we're we're going to be talking about the president's American Jobs Plan, and it's 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 not getting a lot of uh, bipartisan love on the Hill. So we're gonna we're gonna Look at some of the aspects of it that uh, there are differing, differing perspectives on. But as usual, on Facing the Future, we'll come at it from a respectful point of view. So let me ask, uh, let me begin with a, a softball question for both of you. Uh, and you can see if you want to turn it into hardball. <laughs> ben, I'll, I'll let you go first. What are your general impressions? Without going into uh, the weeds here on the Biden infrastructure plan, called the American Jobs Plan, uh, my
2: broad view is that it is an excellent starting point. I think that we have underinvested in things like infrastructure and R and D for the better part of the last few, the better part of my lifetime, really. It's been we've had you know growing disrepair and maintenance backlogs, we've reduced R&D spending. I think it is long past time to uh, restore our commitment to these important public investments that really laid the foundation for economic growth. You know, uh, Every time I've been on here, I've talked about the importance of public investment. And I think this is the first time where uh, it looks like we're finally gonna do a big thing about them. So I'm very excited about the broad framework. I think that some of the details could be uh, better there are changes I certainly would make, but I'm, I'm very happy with it as, as a starting point for what I think could be a, a big, important generational investment.
3: Brian? Yeah, I, I, I have a different view on it. I think for the $2.6 trillion cost, there is remarkably little bang for the buck here. I mean, for an infrastructure bill, the biggest line item in it is $400 billion for long-term care, which, good or bad, has nothing to do with infrastructure. You also have money for community violence prevention. You have money for a civilian climate corps. You you have a lot here that um, I think really isn't, isn't really infrastructure. As for the infrastructure portion, one of my concerns is we have a really inefficient infrastructure system in America in terms of the way we do projects. We're slow, we're bureaucratic, we're expensive, and there's delays. And what this plan does is basically just throw a trillion dollars at it without really fixing the underlying problems that, that prevent us from getting a lot of bang for the buck. Additionally, you know, uh, I know ben, ben mentioned the R&D. I, I guess my concern is when what when ben, when ben sees as R&D, I see as, as too much central planning, essentially. My I prefer R&D where the government is encouraging businesses through things like the R&D tax credit rather than handing out money to industries who appro- who undertake approved projects. To me, that's not the best way to do R and d. I think it's too I think you invite corruption. I think you invite centralization. And then finally, I think the taxes are are, are difficult. Um, it's about one and a half trillion dollars and on businesses. And I think even if you agree with the taxes on this, you're, you're using up a lot of taxes that I think we would have needed for other priorities. So I, I'm, I'm not a fan of this, of this
0: initiative. All right, Tori.
1: Well, I guess I, I just wanted to add a, a little bit of a, of a coda to that conversation. I think one of the things that this proposal does is asks us to think about infrastructure as a spectrum, right? You know, the, the old traditional definition of infrastructure, roads and bridges, mass transit, for example, I think it's appropriate to go beyond that traditional definition. I think one of the things that the pandemic taught us is that things like broadband are part of our infrastructure, right? They're things that, that make us more productive as an economy. So I guess the question I, I have, and, and Brian, you sort of, you touched on it a little bit, so maybe I'll, I'll hand this back to, to, to Ben a little bit. The, the complicated part about the Biden bill is trying to understand, okay, we've got this spectrum for infrastructure, what is the appropriate role for the federal government? Where does it start in terms of of providing and encouraging infrastructure build out? uh, And where does it stop? I think that
2: where sort of my uh, focus on the infrastructure line has been is less sort of where, like there's two different ways you can view view the question. The first is uh, at different stages of the infrastructure process, what is the federal role? And the second is what exactly counts as infrastructure because the Biden administration has, you know, as Brian said, they really have stretched the bounds of what counts as infrastructure here. I, I would agree with him. I don't think that, you know, there's really any universe in which you could say that a long term care program is is infrastructure spending. Um, it's not really even public investment spending. You know, it, it might be good social spending. And I think it probably is. But, you know, these are not investments that, you know, produce additional growth in the future. So I, I do not agree with the expansive definition, or at least as expansive a definition as they've used. Uh, some of the things Brian said, I think, you know, more money for combating climate change, um, whatever form that takes, I think, even if that's not, you know, technically infrastructure, it does count as public investment.
0: And I think that
2: there is merit to including those things here in in this bill and and framing them as, as those long-term investments.
0: Yeah, one of the things that... Uh... I find difficult is is, is Tori's question about the spectrum, because this is a really interesting. So so we know that the roads and bridges, which is about 115 billion uh in the bill, and the nursing care facilities kind of define the the bookends. The the, the boundaries, yeah. What I find difficult is some of the things that could be in between, like for example, the investment in electric vehicles, something that might be more. Fall into the category of broadband uh, access, things that might look at like uh, you know um, infrastructure of the future, <laughs> rather than sort of a transitional infrastructure. Any thoughts on you know where those things fit into a infrastructure investment plan?
3: I think things like broadband are traditionally. I th- I, I I am okay considering broadband infrastructure. Um, my cons- I I, th- I think it is same with like the electrical grid you know, $100 billion for the electrical grid, that is absolutely infrastructure. Some of my concern with some of these proposals, however, is we already have a private sector working hard on this. We already, uh, the the broadband companies invest $50 billion a year privately expanding access around the country. Now they don't hit everything, uh, obviously. There are certain areas where they probably think it's unprofitable, but I'm not sure $100 billion worth. Uh, electric vehicles, you know, again, this stuff, I think it sounds like um, government infrastructure In theory, I think in practice, it kind of just becomes handouts to to a lot of companies. In in terms of, you know, Tory brought up the the rule of the federal government. I'm a big fan of federalism and I would rather see state and local governments take the lead on this. I think federal micromanagement of infrastructure has been really destructive over the last couple of decades. In particular, I would note that state and local governments just got $350 billion for budget deficits that don't really exist anymore. Right, right, right. You want to find a one-time use for that money, not like a permanent tax cut or a permanent spending program. This would be a perfect use. Additionally, there's money for school infrastructure. Schools are currently sitting on $180 billion in federal funding that they're not using for recent K-12 capital grants. I, I would love to see states right there have $530 billion. And the problem I have with the federal role is not just that the federal government is inefficient and it hands it out with politics and all of that, but I mean, the environmental impact statements you know, take, can take decades. The Davis-Bacon regulations raise costs. I would rather see a lot more of a stronger role the for state and local governments taking the lead because I think Washington just does not historically do a good job. Let me say I I agree with Ben that we need more infrastructure investment. I would rather push a lot more of the 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 decision making to state and local governments instead of Washington.
0: This is Facing the Future. I'm Bob Bixby and I'm talking with Ben Ritz of the Progressive Policy Institute, Brian Riedel of the Manhattan Institute, and Tori Gorman, policy director of the Concord Coalition. Uh, Ben, do you want to have any thoughts on those uh, philosophical uh, where where things in in the mushy middle of the uh, infrastructure (laughs) spectrum?
2: Yeah, I think I think Brian makes a very good point about, you know, we just gave all this money to state and local governments for Deficits that don't exist anymore, um, or at least are significantly smaller than the amount of money they've gotten. I absolutely think that should be used for infrastructure. I don't know that I have as much confidence in state governments to do so much better than the feds in this respect. We gave them this money with no, with you know, no or very little strings attached. I do not have full confidence that they are going to use them on infrastructure projects, and so I think there is some benefit in giving money that is directly for infrastructure. One thing I would like to see more of is we, we know that repairs tend to be more cost effective than building new projects, even though they are less politically attractive to local politicians who want to go to ribbon cutting ceremonies. And Man. so I would like to see the federal government you know, use this money uh, to run matching grants that are specifically targeted towards repairs that get states to put some skin in the game using this one time infusion of, of money and matched by federal spending, specifically targeting these, these high-value-added repairs. And I think one thing that I do find encouraging about the, the the proposal, at least as I understand it, is a lot of the traditional infrastructure provisions do talk about the need for repairs. Secretary Buttigieg has talked about a fix-it-first mentality. And so I think there is a valuable federal role to play in encouraging those kind of projects, even though I think you know Brian makes a good point that States are probably good at picking the specific projects, or you know, directing the repair money. And there is certainly a role for the private sector in the areas of of broadband, uh, et cetera.
1: Well, and I, I just put a finer point on what what Ben has said. Anybody who's driven around the Virginia, Maryland, DC area knows that the localities treat their their road prioritization in different ways. I mean, you just drive across the bridge from Maryland into Virginia, and the roads are suddenly tough, pockmarked with 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 potholes, and then. Don't even get me started and driving around on DC roads. So we 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 know that you know leaving it up to the states is not necessarily going to lead to uh, equal transportation systems across all states. So I I think there's a good point there. I um, wanted to ask. Let's let's move uh, to financing. Um, the, the one of the biggest another you know aside from the departure on the definition of infrastructure, the Biden infrastructure plan also departs in significant ways in, in terms of pay for's. You know, in the past we've always used things like the gas tax. To fund uh, major infrastructure uh, bills, um, this bill obviously departs significantly and fo- uh, foists a lot of the the revenue burden onto high net worth individuals and corporations. What do we think about these financing mechanisms, Brian? I'll start with you.
3: The I I have strongly long supported the user pays principle for infrastructure, and there's there's many ways to do user pays. Uh, uh, you know, there's, there's traditional gas taxes. There's from the federal level. There's state gas taxes. There's ideas. I know Ben has talked about vehicle mile uh, tra- uh, taxes. There, there's all sorts. There's, there's tolls. I, I, I'm a big fan of user pay, user fees, and user pays. I am not a big fan of of a 1.7 trillion dollar tax increase on corporations to pay for infrastructure. Couple reasons on that. First off. Just the size, the enormity of these taxes, I think it's it, you, you can't help but not have an economic, a, a significant economic impact. The tax hike on corporations in terms of revenue is five times bigger than the tax cut they got in 2017. You're gonna restore our corporate tax to the highest statutory rate in the world. And, and probably the effective tax will be among the top three highest as well, even if the statutory rate is the highest. I think you're gonna have some drawbacks there competing internationally. Another point that I I wanna make on the taxes is even if you love these taxes, even if you think these are gonna have no negative effect on the economy, we're gonna hit businesses with this 1.8 trillion, I'm not sure that this is what you wanna use the taxes for. I mean, we have so many things we need to finance. We have a huge uh, social security and Medicare shortfall. We have big deficits. I know Biden wants to do a lot more with things like healthcare, the universe of tax increases is not unlimited, and if you're going to use up almost all of our corporate tax hikes that are out there on infrastructure, you don't have much left to raise taxes to fix Social Security, to fix Medicare, to do health care, or Green New Deal, or free college, or, or much else. You're, you're kind of left now raising taxes on individuals earning four, over 400000 The revenue you're going to raise there is pretty limited as well, which means now you're going to the middle class. And so even if someone conceives that these tax hikes might might not be terrible policy, I wish we would save them for other policies and do more user, user fees to pay for this.
0: Well, Ben, you and uh, Will Marshall at the Progressive Policy Institute sent a letter uh, to the Biden administration with some suggestions about taxes as well, uh, really making a similar suggestion to Broaden the uh, not that Brian was calling for more taxes or, but but, but it, it does strike me that the bill is very narrowly dependent on a particular type of revenue, uh, and that the administration may have left some things off the table for its potential payoffs uh, simply because of well maybe some of the promises that President Biden has made about nobody you know making less than four hundred thousand dollars would would see a a tax increase um, seems to take a lot of potential payfors off the table. But you sent a letter up there. So why don't you describe what your recommendations were? Yeah, so our
2: recommendations were essentially to uh, pay for the or at least consider a a broader menu of payfors beyond just the corporate tax side. I happen to like a lot of the corporate tax increases, but not all of them. I think um, just for example, I think the minimum book tax has as a whole host of issues. Um, I don't know that all the international provisions are going to work the way uh, we would hope them to. Um, some of the domestic production incentives. So I think there is room for uh, better better offsets. Uh, just some of the ones we've called for um, on on high net worth individuals um, who inherit their wealth. We've called for. Um, uh, moving to an inheritance tax that is more aggressive than our current estate tax, Um, called for reforming the treatment of capital gains, uh, doing a carbon fee and some of those user fees. Uh, Brian talked about uh, capping the value of itemized deductions uh, alongside raising the corporate tax rate and uh, things like that. So I think there is a a value to considering a broader menu of pay-fors. One thing I want to say, though, uh, in response to Brian's point about we, us needing to um, you know, use this revenue to pay for other things, uh, we did not in our, so we did a budget blueprint in 2019. I came on the show to talk about it. Um, and we did not do all of these tax uh, increases that Biden did. We did some of them, not all of them. But in that context, we did even more infrastructure and R&D spending than this bill would do. And we're able to get the national debt on a downward trajectory. And so I come at this from the perspective of, I would like to do the user fees in conjunction with infrastructure. I would like to be doing a broader set of pay-fors than, um, than just the corporate tax side. But I am not as concerned about taking you know, pay-fors off the table for future uses, because I think, um, you know, having gone through this exercise, there is a way to do all of that in a fiscally responsible way. I don't think that we are using up much, we're using bandwidth here that we need for other things. Um, But the last point thing I'll say on that point is that to do that, Brian is right, um, that is going to require raising taxes on people making less than $400,000. I mean, um, that there are many high income, you know, that's the, might be the top 1%, but, you know, we're gonna have to start looking at least at the top, you know, five to 10 to 20% to, um, for contributions, if we want to go this big on the size of government. So I think there's room there, but we also need to be more flexible.
0: So, Brian, I gotta- this is, uh, Tori, I've, I've got to just take a break here for our, uh, <laughs> for our folks at WKXL. Uh, this is Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. I'm talking with Ben Ritz of the Progressive Policy Institute, Brian Riedel of the Manhattan Institute, and Tori Gorman, policy director of the Concord Coalition. We've been discussing President Biden's 2.2 or 2.3, depending on how you want to look at it, trillion-dollar American Jobs Plan. And we'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. And we'll pick up our conversation on the president's American Jobs Plan with Ben Ritz of the Uh, Progressive Policy Institute, Brian Riedel of the Manhattan Institute, and Tori Gorman, Policy Director of the Concord Coalition. And Tori, before we took a break. You were, you were itching to ask a question that I cut you off. I apologize. The floor is yours.
1: That's okay. It's just so exciting to have these two bright guys with us today. I've got all kinds of questions. Um, so. <laughs> look out. Look out. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, the question I have for you, I've been, I've been wanting to ask this question to every Republican staffer that, that I know. Uh, you, you, you talked about you know, your, your, your preference for financing an infrastructure bill is a user fee of some sort. Um, But it's been abundantly obvious to me in comments that Republican members of Congress have made in the press is that to date, I have yet to see any kind of pay for that a Republican is willing to accept in order to finance an infrastructure bill. So my question is to you, are Republicans willing to accept any kind of pay for um, e- even if they, if the, the infrastructure bill is, is narrowed down to sort of the traditional definition of infrastructure, for example, the 621 billion uh, that are, that's in here for literally roads, bridges, and, and, and mass transit, and things like that, um, is there any kind of, of pay for that Republicans are willing to accept?
3: Let me, let me divide it into two parts. It's like, right, I mean, that's, that's a Great question. In terms of my preference, um, my preference again is would be to move a lot of this to state and local and raise state gas taxes. In fact, states have been raising their gas taxes continually for thirty years, even while the federal has been stuck at eighteen point four. States can also look, you know, creatively at different kinds, you know, vehicle mile or what, whatever. Um, uh, but I, I would like to see again that th- that three hundred and fifty billion re earmarked for 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 like infrastructure, and if they need more, raise state. Raise state taxes, uh, gas taxes more than federal. In terms of where Republicans are, as is you know, my understanding is that not a single Republican lawmaker has voted for a broad-based tax cut since 1990. Tax uh,
1: increase or tax tax cut?
3: increase. Tax increase. I'm sorry. Tax. Not a single Republican member of Congress has voted for a broad-based tax increase since 1990. Um, I'm not sure this is the bill they would break that for. Uh, I think. There are some Republicans, I think you, you you could probably pass a tax increase with some Republicans on, on say the gas tax, because a lot of Republicans on the transportation committees in the House and Senate have called for gas tax increases. I don't think you're going to get a broad coalition of Republicans to vote for it. I think you can pick off 20 or 30 Republicans in the House and five in the Senate to raise gas taxes, as long as you have a very slimmed down bill, $500, $600 billion that focuses a lot more on pavement, Republican lawmakers like pavement. And that also includes some reforms to the costs I talked about earlier, the, 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 the seven year environmental impact statements, Davis-Bacon. I think if you threw in some good government reforms, slimmed it down and gave Republicans their pavement, you could pick off some of them for a gas tax hike. Um, I'm not sure you can get big Republican buy-in on any sort of tax for a bill this big, though.
1: Now, let me just ask you one. I'm going to follow up this one more question. You know, mm-hmm. Republicans have a newfound interest in debt and deficit reductions these days. And at yeah, the same time, Biden won. yes, <laughs> I say that with, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. It's not the most, you know, ideologically consistent position they've held. But you also point out, rightly, that they haven't agreed to a broad-based tax, broad tax increase since 1990. Those two positions, to me, are, are logically inconsistent. One of them's got to go.
3: I think the, the, the view that I would give the Republicans, if I wanted to be as, as rosy as possible, is I think there are some Republicans who would be willing to raise taxes in a deal that significantly addressed the drivers of spending. I don't think there's a lot of Republican interest for raising taxes just to increase spending. I think what what, what some Republicans would say is, I am willing to, to allow tax increases as part of a grand deal that addresses the major spending drivers like social security and healthcare. But the idea of we're gonna raise taxes to pay for a big spending increase, even if the bill is totally paid for, again, you're still taking taxes off the table that you need for deficit reduction. So ultimately, Republicans are going to have to move on taxes because it is pretty much impossible to fix the long-term budget without without some degree of taxes. I've done the 30-year numbers. I can't do it without some degree of taxes. But I also think it is fair for Republicans to to a certain degree say, well, if we're going to do that, let's make sure on the spending side, we're significantly addressing deficits on the spending side as part of the same bill
0: um ben let's look at uh some of the internal problems uh on the the democratic side because not all is smooth sailing there um you know you have some democrats that are beginning to express concern about the size and perhaps also some concerns about the tax increases as well uh, on that side um do you think i mean here's here's my uh concern is uh, that as we go forward, the um, all sides will want to maybe do the spending and the Democrats will have the votes to do the spending. The pay-fors will get difficult. And so they'll do a reconciliation bill that doesn't, that just has the spending and and maybe not so much of the pay-fors uh, because if fiscal responsibility is the only thing standing in the way, I'm not sure that's going to be uh, big enough. So. What, what are you seeing as the possibilities that there might be some sort of uh, willingness to negotiate a bit uh, on this bill, not necessarily to get Republican votes, but just to get as many democratic votes as they uh, can to get this thing through?
2: I'm I would say I'm cautiously optimistic. Um, so I think that you know we we have seen, Uh, Democrats really across the spectrum say they want tax increases for this. Um, From the moderates who don't want to add to the deficit to the progressives who see it as an equity issue. Um, I think we are unified as a party in wanting at least some amount of this to be offset with some amount of taxes. Um, I think things like raising the corporate tax rate um, at least to 25% we have consensus on. Joe Manchin recently said he's open to 25% even if not 28%. Um, I think there are uh, a number of other taxes that there could be consensus for um, the inheritance tax, I think, uh, is one I would hope Democrats could could find some unity on. Um, and then we have some more creative pay fors. one that I, I left off that's on our letter um, that's, I think, very important uh, is a national value added tax. Um, that would be a big increase in, in taxes, but it would be a big, uh, big new revenue raiser. And uh, Senator Joe Manchin, the most moderate Democrat in the Senate, has has said this is his preferred pay for. Um, and so I think that when you have, uh, you know, the sen- the center w- centrist wing being willing to put um, these big revenue raisers on the table, um, I think that uh, we should be able to find some common ground to be able to pay for this stuff.
0: But there's another bill coming. The <laughs> there American a- Family Plan. So... The I think some of those things that you mentioned might be not the value added tax, but the inheritance tax, some of those things might be saved for the next round. Uh,
2: They might be. Um, I will just say from what I know, uh, from what I've observed, I do not think that uh, the Biden administration has run out of tax increases they can use for that, even if they use some of this stuff. Um, You know, like I said, our budget blueprint, we had a lot of this stuff in it and we managed to put the budget on a path to balance. Obviously, that's not gonna happen here, um, but there is is there there is a, uh, a large universe of revenue options still on the table uh, that we can tap to pay for this stuff.
0: One more question on the Democrats side. This is not a budget yet, which is somewhat, I, I like to keep reminding people we have seen a big COVID bill we've seen, phase one, we've, we're gonna get phase two. We still haven't seen the discretionary numbers Yet that's supposed to come out this week. So I'm really curious how this all adds up in the context of a, uh, a, a total budget. But you mentioned that you guys had a big deficit reduction. Um, I mean, it, presumably you included some healthcare savings in there. are there Some of the traditional cost-saving things that uh, find their way into presidential budgets. Are you anticipating any of that coming out uh, at some point?
2: I would hope, and I would say I'm even cautiously optimistic, that the Biden administration will pursue some healthcare savings. Um, he campaigned on it. Uh, Speaker Pelosi has said that she wants to get some healthcare savings. I think that you know it is it is not reasonable, frankly, to be doing you know more expansions of coverage and doing the long term care stuff if we are not also doing healthcare cost savings. Um, you know I think it's one thing to do public investment before you do uh entitlement reform i think it's a whole other issue to expand entitlements before you basically i don't think we should be making new promises until we're paying we found a way to make good on the ones we are already making um so i i'm hopeful that there will be some some discussion of of cost of healthcare cost controls um if not in the infrastructure context then um, in the american family and and broader budget context
0: This is Facing the Future. I'm Bob Bixby and I'm talking with Ben Ritz of the Progressive Policy Institute, Brian Riedel of the Manhattan Institute, and Tori Gorman, Policy Director of the Concord Coalition. Tori, I'll kick it over to you. (laughs)
1: Um, I wanted to step back. We really dove into some of the weeds of this infrastructure bill. I wanted to step back uh, a little bit. This bill comes to us at a time when the economy is doing fairly well uh, after the, the COVID recession. I mean, we still have a ways to go. You know, we're still down about eight, eight million jobs from uh, where we were before the recession hit, the COVID recession hit. Um, but in terms of marketing this, this plan, this infrastructure bill, uh, the president is talking about how it's a job creator, but the market seems to be creating jobs all on its own. Um, I had somebody tell me a story the other day about Milton Friedman, who was talking to some lawmakers in another country who were touting the recent uh, approval and and initiation of building a dam, and that the the local leaders were talking about the job creation prospects of building the dam. And and Milton Friedman said, well, wait a minute, if if you're thinking about this in terms of jobs, you know, take away the shovels and give them a spoon, Uh, because then you've got sort of a a perpetual uh, supply of of, of jobs. Um, Looking Uh, towards the future, uh, you know, there are two drivers of our economic growth. Number one is the size of our labor force. Number two is the productivity of our labor force. Um, Given that the jobs market seems to be healing on its own, as we look at this infrastructure bill, is it more appropriate to look at those provisions within the bill that would enhance labor productivity and increase uh, future potential output rather than just on uh, provisions that will create jobs.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think if you there, there's kind of this view out there that infrastructure cre- creates all these jobs because you have to hire all these people, and and you're right. First off, the economy is, is already recovering. We're projected to be at full employment, you know, within a couple of years. Um, the Biden administration has been touting this number that this will create 19 million jobs because they misread a Moody study, um, but really you know, we're all going to be down to 4 or 5% unemployment anyway. So I don't think you're going to get a big job creator out of this. Additionally, a lot of the research that's actually out there says infrastructure building doesn't really create direct jobs as much as it displaces other jobs. You know, you, you, you move people from one sector to another. So the act of building infrastructure doesn't actually add to employment. I think if you're looking for law, for, for, for employment effects of infrastructure, It's as what you said, it's it's the labor product, it's it's the labor productivity. It's when the infrastructure is completed and you have better highways to transport goods and shorter commute times and a more effective electrical grid that lowers costs, that's where the productivity and growth and then and economic growth and job growth comes from. It doesn't necessarily come from the act of hiring people to build infrastructure, as much as it comes from the final product. Of having an economy that can be more productive and therefore create more jobs, and that's one area in which I think you know if if, if this if this bill is successful, and it does you know really help our infrastructure, you're right. You are in the long term going to get more jobs and growth out of it. It won't be because we hired people uh, to, to to you know pour concrete necessarily. It'll be because we have a better functioning economy. But as you say, overall. The economy is doing well right now in terms of its recovery from the pandemic. And by the time we actually start implementing parts of this bill, the economy is going to be looking even better.
1: Ben, you got any comments on that?
3: Yeah,
2: uh, I think Brian's largely right. Um, one uh, small caveat I would give is that if you're doing the infrastructure spending in a recession, um, when there are, you know, plenty of idled workers available, Then you actually can get infrastructure job creation. Um, It's really just a question of when you do the project. Um, But that being said, I think, you know, he is right that um, I I don't know that I would characterize the current economy as good. But uh, certainly once these projects get underway, I think there's very high probability that we will be at or near full employment and at that point. Um, he's right, it would just be displacing. So uh, I think we absolutely should be looking at this in terms of how many jobs, or maybe not how many, but the scale of jobs we think it's going to uh, create in the future from productivity improvements. And on that, I'm actually, I'd say one thing that I'm somewhat disappointed about is, uh, I think we've, we know that R&D can have, uh, you know, over the long term, some of the biggest bang for buck in, uh, improvements in labor productivity, Uh, opportunities. And that is, uh, you know, I think right now it's less than 10% of the bill. Um, It's probably um, somewhere on the order of a fifth of what we called for in our budget blueprint. And so I would have liked to see more of those high value added uh, long-term productivity investments. Um, But I think that, you know, the bill as it stands should have some value added there
0: anyway. Um, I want to get the Drop back just a little bit on the uh, fiscal impact thing. There's been a lot of comment about the the scoring uh, that the uh, administration has used here with eight years of spending versus 15 years of revenue, and uh, just like to get your perspective on uh, on that and whether. The bill appears to be—is uh, it—is it fiscally responsible in that regard, or, or not?
3: I would say I—I I have long been skeptical of these of these gimmicks in politics, where we we do a one-year expense and then we pay for it over the next ten years, or an eight-year expense and we do it over fifteen years. This has been going on for decades. The danger is that it usually doesn't work out very well, in part because this eight-year plan would actually have to expire after eight years in order for those numbers to work. Now, does anyone believe that the $400 billion in long-term care support is just going to be cut off at the end of eight years? Absolutely not. Additionally, all these new offices they're creating to to hand out research grants to to businesses every year, those aren't just going to be shuttered after eight years. Um, I, I think a lot of this infrastructure is going to be made permanent. And if, and this isn't just theoretical in the last stimulus bill, we, they passed a temporary increase in the child credit for one year. And the ink wasn't even dry before they said, we got to make this permanent. Uh, we're going to, we, we, we have a child credit cliff. We need to make permanent. Of course, we're going to have a long-term care cliff and we're going to have an RD cliff, and we're going to have an infrastructure cliff. And once you start extending this stuff, the whole we're going to pay for eight years of spending with 15 years of taxes becomes we're going to pay for permanent spending with annual taxes that can't quite keep up. And so I think kind of like the last bill, the cost of this bill is going to rise because of the artificial cliffs that are put in. And by the way, this is a bipartisan problem. The Republicans do the same thing when they pass tax cuts. They create these, these, expiration dates on tax cuts in order to keep the cost down, And then as soon as the ink is dry, say, we have to fix the fiscal cliff and we can't let it expire. And so I I think this is kind of a gimmick.
2: I actually disagree on this one. Brian is certainly right about the child tax credit example and this being a a bipartisan problem of using, uh, you know, ostensibly temporary policy. I think when it comes to capital investment, you can really make there, it really can be a temporary infusion, given that we have um, these, you know, infrastructure uh, deficits that have been growing over time, it will take a, lo- a bigger infusion over a short period of time to pay for it than it will require in long-term costs to keep it up. Um, on the long-term care side, uh, I know there's a similar backlog with, um, you know, people who are supposed to be eligible for this care and not getting it. And so, even though I, I absolutely agree, like some of that's going to be permanent spending, it is not just eight years. Uh, I don't think it's going to be at that 400 billion dollar level um, the whole time. So, in that context, the way, the question I ask is: number one, are these revenue measures, you know, going to cover it over the long term? And I think that's important because, at least from the Democratic perspective, these are intended to be permanent measures to pay for largely these supposed to be uh, permanent revenue increases to pay for largely temporary spending. And so over the long term, that actually would be net deficit reducing. And so I think, you know, Brian is right. We should ask the question, is that really what's happening here? Uh, And if the answer is no, then we treat it like a gimmick. But I'm not so quick to dismiss it out of hand because I think there is a possibility that this is materially different from those past experiences where, um, you know, like with the tax cuts bill where, you know, these were clearly meant to be permanent tax cuts and they expired temporarily
3: uh, on purpose
2: just for I, I think,
3: I'll just say, I think when you're creating new age, new offices, it's really hard to shutter an office that's been created. That That's part of my concern is they're creating mm. a lot of fully new initiatives in office. and offices, And I hope you're right that they can actually shutter them, but boy, they, they can take on a life of their own.
0: One thing I, that- I, I will uh, agree with- one thing that I have the power to do is, is shutter the program, uh, which unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, I need to do. We can't go on and on for 15 years. <laughs> um, but I do say, I, the, uh, my own take on that is just quickly that I, I was happy at least to see the administration say, this needs to be paid for. I agree that there's a lot of gimmicky uh, stuff here and stuff that's probably not going to be paid for over the long term. But I, I do like preserving the commitment anyway to, to pay for things. I know there are some people that think that the president shouldn't even be talking about budgets and deficits because that's uh, defeating the ambition of what could be achieved. So at least the, uh, the, the whole idea of whether or not something is paid for is, is on the table. Uh, this is Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. I've been talking with Ben Ritz of the Progressive Policy Institute. And Brian Riedel of the Manhattan Institute and Tori Gorman, policy director of the Concord Coalition. Thank you all for listening. We'll be back next week with another look at
1: Facing the Future.